0: Tired, oh, Come stay while
1: Welcome to another episode of Baker's Dozen. And tonight we're lucky enough to have our first female guest, Maddie Cooper, who's a social worker in Melbourne, also the sister of Tom Cooper, but we won't hold that against her. How are you going tonight, Maddie?
2: Yeah, pretty good. How are you going?
1: Yeah, lovely, lovely. So, how are you? How did you cope through the the stricter times of COVID nineteen?
2: It was a strange time. I think on a lot of different platforms, doing social work from home is a bit of a unique experience. Um, getting used to seeing yourself on camera a lot. But in terms of the social restrictions, my life didn't actually change that much. Thankfully, I just kind of chilled inside with my animals and. And I did little projects, and it was actually really nice to just slow down for a bit. I didn't think I'd enjoy it as much as I did.
1: And speaking of animals, you're nursing, you're nursing one there.
2: His name is Ed. He's a baby cockatiel. He's just come into our family now, so we're just cuddling and getting used to each other's scents.
1: Lovely. And you've got a few other weird and wacky animals. Give us a give us a bit of a rundown on those.
2: I do. I've got Lily. She's my ten-year-old Pomeranian cross. She was a little unwanted Christmas present that was going to be put down at six weeks old, um, but she came to live with me and she's been my best friend since. And then we've got Ekachi who's my three meter python, currently weighing in at eight kilos. <laughs> He's a big boy um, and they all just kind of hang out together.
1: And how do new people, like if you brought a new partner home, what about, how do they react to an eight meter, eight, eight kilo, 10 meter <laughs> snake?
2: Look, on the times that I've remembered to introduce them formally, they're a bit it's a bit easier. they you know, they look at him, they're a bit hesitant, but they see me with him and it's good. But there has been times that I've forgotten Ek was, you know, hanging out in the shower cubicle, had a partner come over to shower and forgot, and yeah, they got a bit of a surprise introduction.
1: <laughs> is it safe to say Ek is the favourite pet as you've got him tattooed on your on your leg?
2: Oh, I don't have favourites. They've all got their own little unique stuff. Um, No, I can choose. They're my babies.
1: So you might get a tattoo of Lil sometime down the track then?
2: Absolutely.
1: And you touched on before you are doing a few projects in COVID-19. What what were those?
2: So I recently bought a house with uh, Thomas Cooper. Again, don't hold it against me. Um, So I've just painted the whole house. I just finished this weekend. Um, did a few little DIY stuff, built a barbecue, um, built a veggie patch.
1: Yeah, lovely. And what, what veggies are you growing?
2: Um, I've got some pumpkins. I've got um, dill, some potatoes, strawberries, um, lots of herbs, cayenne peppers, chilies. So if,
1: you've got, if you could give one tip about how to um, cultivate veggies and fruits, what would that be?
2: Google, it's a big one. <laughs> Knowing when to harvest them—that's a big one. Most plants are ready to harvest when they, the leaves start dying, so that's a good tip. Yeah, I reckon that's probably. It. And just always inspect. You can you can tell when a plant looks edible. Just if it doesn't look like grass, just you know, get your plant snap app out, scan it, and fetch it to herb.
1: Plant <laughs> snap app out, is it?
2: And you just take a photo of it, and it uploads it, and tells you what kind of plant or fruit or vegetable it is
1: yeah awesome did not know that there you mm-hmm. go so give us a bit of a history of your um background you growing up in um sunny Macedon, there and
2: yeah so i had a bit of a colorful um, upbringing so lived in a house with my mum, two brothers and a sister in Macedon. we just yeah kind of all we all went to the same primary school and just lived in that house since i can remember um then parted ways in high school because I was a pretty naughty kid. So it took me three different high schools to get through. Um, and then country life didn't really suit my values or my, um, the way I like to live my life. So pretty much moved to the city as soon as I turned 18. Um, but had been staying at a few different places whilst I was younger. So staying with my grandparents. Um, Friends' houses, doing a little bit of woofing. And then, yeah, moved up to Melbourne and got my first lease when I turned 18 and then have been living in share houses ever since.
1: You mentioned woofing there. What, what's that?
2: So woofing's well, are working for accommodation, essentially. So um, I was, for just a small period of time, uh, working at a pub and staying out the back, um, just washing dishes, doing a bit of waitressing. Yep. Um, and, yeah, got some food and accommodation in exchange.
1: Yeah, lovely. Where was that pub? Massive. okay. Yep, still local. All right. And you, you kind of touch on there that the country life didn't kind of suit your values. Um, can you run us a, a bit, can you run us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah, of course. Um, I just find that, you know, a lot of country towns there, you know, it's a really assimilated community that, you know, it's, it's predominantly white, kind of Catholic, Christian, um, And it's not really, they're not super progressive. Um, And I was someone who was, you know, always identified with, in a different minority groups, but also their progressive causes. And I just found that I was always butting heads with different people down there, teachers down there. Um, I struggled that everyone wanted to be the same and didn't really celebrate diversity. So I wanted to get out
1: I can definitely agree with that. I remember our um RA teacher in high school said God made Adam and Eve and not Adam and Steve. A pretty yeah. dinosaur view. Um Yeah. Now I I have to say, like obviously you're your brother, I didn't know too much about you, but you did have a bit of an infamous name there in the Master Rangers.
2: Yeah. There
1: was a story about you maybe going to another school to, <laughs> to say hello to one of your friends. Yeah. Um is there much truth in that story?
2: Look, there are, there is a lot of truth in that, in that story, although the rumors escalated a lot they escalated up to I think I stabbed a pregnant teacher which definitely didn't happen (laughs) um yeah I was pretty angry at the time enrolling with a few people who weren't the best influence um and myself and a a friend at the time had asked me to go and speak to this girl at another school um which I agreed to do I didn't know it was going to be such a big fight but um it did it ended up being a pretty bad fight and there was lots of court cases and things that rolled on from it um wasn't a smart move to do it in my school uniform and definitely regretted it um all the stuff that followed it was f- really sad I didn't even know the girl's name which just goes to show you know once you're kind of in a certain scene it really doesn't matter
1: so obviously now you're a well-established um social work and you've yeah, you know, like you said, you come from a bit of a difficult stage when you're growing up. Was it like a was there one turning point that was like a bit of a catalyst for the for the change?
2: Yeah. So when I was um, kind of sixteen, seventeen, I had an attempt, and it was um, I just got to a really dark place where I didn't think I wanted to do all of that anymore. And then I woke up in the morning and just decided it's it's kind of. It's now or never. You've got to make changes, otherwise it's going to end pretty badly. Yep. Um, I've made a real mess of my life at this point, so I just quit my school, enrolled in a school an hour and a half away, cut all my friends off, and did so. I did a three-hour commute every day to school, and that was the best thing that I ever did. Just went from getting you know expelled to straight A's, and just you know got a chance to really separate myself from my reputation that I've made. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was huge.
1: That's really good. So you could, you're kind of at your lowest ebb and you kind of realise if, if things are going to keep progressing, you could go down one path or you could just change it all and cut ties with all the negative and toxic, toxic people.
2: Absolutely. And nothing's, it's not going to get given to you. And unfortunately, it's probably not going to be a slow change. Like those friends and that cycle I was in, that wasn't going to change. Mm-hmm. It needed to be cut off.
1: And I think that's great. They say you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So if you're hanging out with, a lot of toxic people, it's pretty hard to break that cycle unless you just go cold turkey and, and cut them off, which would have been hard to do at like, the impressionable age of 15, 16, like to, mm. to do that.
2: And I guess on top of that, it was, you know, the the teachers and things like school was quite influential um, and my teachers really hated, like had already put me in a box. Yeah. Um, so I remember I went to the careers counsellor and I, they asked like I went in there and, I said I wanted to be a neuroscientist. So, or, sorry, a neuropsychiatrist. So, I wanted to do medical biophysics, mm-hmm. and they told me that my career path was better suited to be a stripper. And I said, I can't dance. And they said, Well, I guess you need a more hands-on career then.
1: Yeah, geez, that's pretty. It's pretty so, brutal, isn't it? So much from the students.
2: Biophysics, so it wasn't about my knowledge. It was just about a box that they'd put me in.
1: And so, so obviously you had that low ebb and you turn your life around, um, went to a different high school, got straight A's and then did you go straight into uni?
2: Yeah. So I went from, um, I went from school into my course at medical biophysics. Um, oh, sorry. I went to Africa first and then went there. And then I did that for about a year and then realized at that time, um, it's a real black and white course. It was very lab based and i would just kind of turned my life around and started traveling and I really wanted to do a lot of hands-on work. Yep. So I dropped that and picked up social work, did my social work degree and started working in the field before I qualified. But now I'm thinking about, you know, now I'm thinking about going back to the initial degree now that I've had that hands-on experience.
1: Tell us about Africa. Like going to Africa as an 18 year old female would have been a quite an eye-opening experience I'd imagine.
2: It was insane. So I've been twice. The first time I went 18 um, with a volunteer group, and the second just for one month. Mm -hmm. Then, um, last or two years ago now, I went camping for five months in Africa, um, all through the East Coast, which was entirely different. The first time really opened my eyes, I guess, to a lot of kind of, I guess, white groups of people trying to help and having the best intention but actually being pretty harmful um, by not listening to communities, going places where they're not particularly wanted and just going in with that mentality of, you know, Westerners know best. Um, Mm -hmm. I saw a lot of really horrific treatment of Black people and, you know, people being silenced and, you know, African communities just not having a voice or a choice. But the second time I went back, you know, it was just it was just a lot more organic and we were just cruising through towns and trading and buying stuff off local communities. And it was, you know, it was really nice.
1: Lovely. And what was your, what was your favorite country you went to or some of the nicer places?
2: Sudan for sure. Yep. Sudan was just one of the most welcoming and beautiful places and just really slow. And, you know, everyone just had a really cool perspective on life and time and,
1: so what, what are the what are the main differences in perspective coming from the Australian, very Western American culture to, to the culture in Sudan?
2: They just, everything's really slow. Um, so they just think it's hilarious how quickly we're running all the time and running for what what are we doing? Like what, what are we speeding up to achieve? Because the rat race doesn't really end. They just had a lot of time for each other. And I liked every night they would light a fire or this particular man I was speaking to. Would light a fire and sit around with his... Um, his people and they'd just talk and but they've never put more wood on the fire. So once a fire is lit, you just let it burn and once it burns out, you'll go to bed.
1: That's cool. It's really natural, isn't it? the law of the universe? Once it burns out you stop. So have you tried to adopt some of their values and culture and brought it back with you in Australia?
2: Yeah, absolutely I definitely learned to slow down a lot from that. And it's just like little catchphrases just stay in my mind. Just I remember these guys just being like, hey, hey take time, just take time and just to slow down and catch. So, and I think, you know, it's, I've always kept it in my mind that people like you need to empower communities to build themselves. Don't go in there and fix it for them. Just work with people, learn from people, but they need to do it themselves. They want 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 to do it with each other.
1: And does that kind of go back to your first experience in Africa when you went there and they didn't kind of listen, they kind of went in and said, this is what we think is going to be best and just went in. If they took that approach and consulted first, and Connor did what they wanted to do,
2: yeah, absolutely. There should have been a community consult, and I think if anything, maybe doing a workshop with members of the community that were interested and upskilling them to go back to their communities and implement those stuff. We don't need to fly in there as as foreigners and you know implement those programs.
1: Yeah, it's kind of glorified in Western culture, like. People, you know, and people say, oh, what are you doing? I'm busy. I'm busy." We really glorify being busy and, and keeping busy. And we, we look busy in front of our bosses and that. And we stretch out and, you know, we, we probably accomplish what we do in eight hours and five hours, but we stretch it out to look busy and all that. Hmm. But, you know, what, what are we keeping busy for? What are we rushing in that, in that rush
0: for?
2: And the thing is, is even when you get it done, the list is indefinite. So if you had plans to do all this stuff and you do it five hours early, you just start doing more stuff. And it's when it just
1: doesn't end. No, exactly right. So take us back into your um into your, your work now. So we talked about your uni life and you're in quite a few sharehouses, weren't you? Yeah. I had the pleasure of sharing a sharehouse with you at one stage. Old oh, H
2: Crows.
1: Um yeah, give us some of the trials and tribulations of um sharehouse living.
2: So um yeah, the first place I actually um my sister was renting in it and I was renting our family home because everyone had moved out um, and I, when I flew to Africa I came back and my family had moved me so that was a interesting time because um, my sister just started wanted at the house. So I flew back into the country into a house that I'd never been in um, and lived there by myself for a little while. Then I moved to Melbourne to rent that out again with some friends and a partner at the time. Um, then, and that was okay, but it was just, it was really cold. It was huge commute from work and there was you know, no heating. We were 18, 19, so splitting wood and stuff was just foreign. Um, then I moved to a share house with a friend um, and my brother joined me and we had a bit of a falling out, so we moved back home again. Um, then I got a property in Sunshine with some lads, some dons, yourself included. <laughs> um, we lived there for... Probably a year and a half, which was <laughs> rogue house, good old classic uni student life. Just lots of parties, lots of running and luck. Um, and then I started head leasing, so I started getting my own properties and just subletting. Um, had some super duds roommates that were just not like me. And some, some one of my housemates actually became my best friend, and I lived with her for five years. Then um, I lived with. I've lived with two partners, both didn't work out. Um, Never did the relationship. I've lived with best friends, normally doesn't work out either. Um, And then, yeah, this last share house I was in, I'd planned to stay a longer time, but um, our the landlord was moving back into the house and I just got so sick of it, so decided to just jump in and buy something and I'm still sharing in this house.
1: but, yeah. So what would be, if you, could, if you could get all your experience from share houses together, what would be like three or four tips you'd give someone who's starting out in a, looking into share houses, what would be some that the tips should give to avoid the pitfall, pitfalls? That don't
2: you can live run with into? friends. <laughs> don't live with your best friend. Yep. Um, your best friends at the time, you will end up killing each other and you'll probably lose the friendship. Don't, I, I guess, don't live in each other's pockets. You know, give each other space, have boundaries, have rules. Um, figure out what you're doing with dishes. <laughs> that will be a fight in every house that you go into.
1: Do you remember? Do you remember that just quickly there on the dishes? It just brought up a story of of that share house in Um Albion. There's um, <laughs> a bit of a cold war going on with. Uh, like four housemates and the dishes and I reckon the pile up was for two weeks, three weeks. Mm. And um, I don't know what
0: happened.
1: I don't know what happened, but one of our housemates went out to Bunnings and bought a six, 60 litre bin and did did three weeks worth of dishes.
2: Because there was no space to do the dishes. Yeah. It was, look, it was dishevelled. I also remember in that share house, turning our kitchen floor into an um, ice skating rink by putting dishwashing liquid all over the floor.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> that's a lot of stories probably for another day um, <laughs> coming from that share that house. Um, yeah, so run us through your, your professional life. You've um, progressed through the corporate ladder pretty quickly.
2: Yeah. Um, so I, I did my placement with MCM um, and then I went straight into working at, at a youth refuge. Um, I, only, I applied for casual because I wanted to just kind of, you know, slowly wean into the field while I was still studying. Um, but they offered me a full-time position, so I took that. Uh, I worked full-time for a year and a half. Um, and towards the end, I had a really significant incident with a young person, so I decided to take some time off um, and that's why I went to Africa. I took about four and a half months off. Then I went back to refuge full-time for probably another six months before I applied for an outreach position. Um, purely because I was doing maybe 60 hour weeks and at the time I had a partner, it was just really, it was quite a lot of time to be doing overnights at the refuge and not being available for my friends or family. Then I moved to outreach. So doing outreach case management, um, still in youth work. And then I got asked to do the senior worker role for that role. So just kind of supervising the other um, outreach members. And then there was a bit of a restructure. So I took a secondment in leadership, which I've um, really, really loved. I've been doing that for six months, which is, um, I guess, being the team leader of the refuge staff. And then last year I got named practitioner, Victorian practitioner of the state from the council to homeless persons, which is a peak body. And that was like just ridiculous.
1: Yeah, awesome. So was that an award, that practitioner? Or was that a, a new role? uh it's an award yeah so you've you've gone from going around high school it just it just goes to show it's a bit of a cinderella story really just how how much i progressed and um and turn things around which is really good so have you have you found the difference between i suppose working in um working dealing with the people in the refuge dealing with the politics there then becoming a manager and dealing with the politics of the staff What have you found, yeah, easier or harder out of those roles?
2: I've actually found it really, really, I guess, a transition probably easier because, I like, I did that grind for a long time and, you know, it doesn't sound like very long, but when you're there 60 hours a week, like I was sleeping at the refuge three nights a week, you, like, it's, you can't understand the toll that that takes when you're, when you haven't done it. Like, especially being a solo worker, so you're there by yourself with 10 young people, sometimes people you don't know, there's incidents happening. I've done CPR on three young people. I've gotten myself into some really sticky situations. Like that can manifest in so many different ways. And I feel like having done it, when I'm in a leadership position, I can kind of empathise with what management mm-hmm. is saying, but I can relate in a way that also like validates the workers and what they're going through and what they might be feeling
1: absolutely and I think you'd probably earn that the workers respect that matt you know Mads has gone through this herself she knows what she's talking about if i find that interesting so just one person is left alone with ten ten young people overnight
2: yep for 26 hours
1: is that a government funding shortage or
2: no it's, it's just the model it's a model that is you know goes back a really really long time um, and to be honest like we have trialed at different times having two workers on but it it does create a bit of a weird dynamic because it's a residential setting. Mm.
0: It's
2: quite nice to just have one worker. there, just kind of like floating around and, you know, when there's too many people, it really feels like a service. Um, Yeah. So we try and keep that homey dynamic, but it's just when incidents happen, it's you need to be eight people at once. And that can be really, really stressful, really impossible.
1: Yes. What was your main, your main support? So things did go out of hand and you couldn't control it by yourself. Was there someone on call to help you or was it just a call to triple zero? Like what was the Um, protocol?
2: A bit of both. So there's an on-call service, which now I do like what I'm rostered as part of that on-call service. So, you know, a member of leadership will be on call 24-7. But then, you know, if it's really serious, we always say just call the police, call the ambulance, get that response coming and then call us. Um, And sometimes, you know, we will go in as well and go and help out
1: there was a system in place yep and how often were the the police called out to the refuge on average i reckon
2: it's hard it peaks and troughs so there's times that you just have a cohort that's a bit different i guess when i was there we went through a real a bit of a shift where we made a commitment to really support a lot of the young people that no one was supporting Mm -hmm. that you know had kind of maxed out services capacity and you know the threshold wasn't high enough, so we kind of put our feet down and said we're going to hold them all until something better opens up. And it was just, it was just a lot of complexity at the one time. Yeah. So we work probably every single night, every second night.
1: And are the police still taking your calls seriously? It was like, oh, is that, re- is that refuge again? It's not priority uh, one, or
2: no? They're pretty significant incidents. So even though they have to attend every night, they come and it's it's well worth it. Yeah. So, you know, it's warranted. I should
1: say. All right, Mads, tell us a bit about your spir- spirituality. You're quite a spiritual person.
2: Mm. So this is another one of those things that just kind of happened overnight with a little bit of a story that I'll tell you. <laughs> so I, my mum was always really into spirituality and I just thought it was the biggest crop of shit. Didn't believe it at all. And I was just in a really, really deep depression in a really bad space. And she forced me to go see this chronic healer which is kind of like a kind of uh, spiritual healer, but it's closer to like past life regression type thing. So I, I went to this place, she forced me to go. And I remember walking in and just being like, this place is a joke, I'm not doing this. Went into the room, the woman asked me to go to sleep or close my eyes, so I closed my eyes. She was doing some random stuff. Um, and I had this dream, I was drowning. And it was so vivid. And then I woke up and I, me being the sassy, angsty team, I just went, I'm not paying you so I can have a nap and stormed out. So I'm walking down the street and my mom's chasing me, asking me to go back. And I start getting really short of breath. And I'm like, start kind of hyperventilating. Mum thinks I'm having a panic attack. Then I'm like, really can't breathe. So she drags me into the car and I'm in the car. And I start, like, flicking my arms. I'm like, I think I'm drowning. And I kept saying, I think I'm drowning, I think I'm drowning. And mum was like, stop kicking, stop kicking, up, Like, I can't breathe. So she pulled over and I started vomiting all this water, just so much water. So she pulled me out of the car and onto the ground and I'm just vomiting and shaking. Then I kind of pull it together a bit. She gets me back in the car, um, takes me home where it's still happening this whole way. And then she ended up having to give me mouth to mouth because I was like, I couldn't couldn't breathe. Mm. And she still says to this day, it's the most terrifying thing that she's ever seen. She's like, how do you explain who could I call? Like I couldn't call the ambulance and say my daughter's drowning in air. Anyway, I kind of came out of it. And then we emailed, I sent the lady who did the Pranakili a pretty abusive email, just being like, what did you do to me? Mm. You know? And she responded and said, you know, this is really normal. It happens a lot of the time. I wish she hadn't have left because we could have managed it here. But, you know, you run out and that's around your past life and these things ending and your chapter starting. And since then, it was she explained things around my mum and my relationship and, you know, why there was so much hostility. And after that, we just, we became best friends and literally everything just turned inside out. And then ever since then, I've been really open to spirituality, really open to crystals, um, you know, protecting my energy. Even the, when I had the attempt, my social worker actually pulled my mum aside and said, you know, I do spiritual readings and that girl is in has, you know, so much pain, you need to go get her cleared. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, it's just kind of always followed me around
1: yeah snowboard from there so did you ever go back and see that healer after that that experience or
2: Uh, she stopped practicing there but i've emailed her quite a few times yeah uh, and she sometimes just gives me a heads up for certain things that i should just kind of be mindful of if i start experiencing things like whether she picks up certain energies um she said my next pivotal point will feel like burning and I, I don't know if it's whether she told me or not, but I definitely had a moment in Africa where I felt like my skin was burning um, and it was terrifying.
1: A prelude a prelude to menopause maybe. <laughs>
2: yeah, maybe. Early menopause.
1: That's, that's really interesting. So did she explain why I had such, like why that normally happens when someone has a nap and then has such a like out-of-body experience afterwards?
2: Uh, she just said it, it usually happens in the room like while you're asleep so that the issue was that i was walking and was conscious so i was kind of like playing out my dream yeah is what she kind of explained it to be so yeah similar to i guess past life regressions you, your body kind of manifests it and i guess you know the body can do things like have phantom pregnancies so I think when the body believes it enough, your body can really do anything. So,
1: how did how does her how did her practice draw that out of you? Was it like an essence in the air, or the mood, or just her sight, like spirituality? Or how does that how does that happen for just a layman who doesn't know much about this kind of stuff?
2: To be honest, I have no idea because I was so shut off for it um, at the start, and I, I was barely even paying attention I just kind of went to sleep yeah I don't I think she was by memory I know we were in a room and we had lots of crystals around and you know she was kind of saying a lot of like questions and kind of easing me into like meditation but from there she said people just kind of tell their own story and she said that I had told the story of my mum and I but we were sisters in it but I spoke about their dynamic and their of hostility and the anger and resentment.
1: Mm, that's really interesting. So have you gone to any other like a tarot card reader, any anyone after that? In that yeah,
2: uh, I've been to a few. There's definitely a lot of sham people out there. Yep. Um I've had some that were really, really spot on.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um I had actually a friend's partner came to my house once just we were having a party. Uh he walked in and he just went pretty much like sorry, I can't be here, like, nothing to do with you, but just the energy here is is overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he just pretty much went, just before I go, just want to let you know that your dad's spirit is tied to this house. It's tied to a brown object in your walk-in robe. And he just literally, he'd never been to my house, walked inside into my walk-in robe, picked out my dad's leather jacket and yep. said, that's the anchor. And then you said, your dad died of cancer, didn't he? And he goes, and I'm getting the starting letter A, which his name is Alan. Yep. And he just left.
0: Was
1: that the house in Macedon? Was that your, where you grew up as kids? Yep. So he was a friend who had, psych, like, has he, has he had these before? Like, was that like a-
2: Yeah, he doesn't do it for work, but it's just something that he just kind of-
1: He's got. Said, yeah. And what does that make you feel? Someone like, yeah, just knowing all that information about you and your family and-
2: It's kind of scary at the start. And you just think like, God, how did, you know, how did they know that there's no other way to explain it? Like even mm. his partner, which is our connection, wouldn't have known that.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. It was just bizarre.
1: And could you kids or your mum sense your dad's still in that household, He's spirit, or have you ever sensed him at well, there all? There
2: you- times where my mum and I are on a really similar wavelength. And, you know, I think just before I bought this house, there was one particular day where, you know, I don't talk about my dad much. I don't. You know, it sounds bad, but I don't think about him that much because he died so many years ago. Yep. But there was this one day where it's just every, like, probably hour, I was like, oh, that's my dad's song. Oh, that's the flower on my dad's grave. Oh, that's, like, just one after the other. And I didn't talk to my mum about it. And then I came to this house and blooming out the front of it was his rose. I've never seen that rose anywhere else. Yeah. Um, and it's in his memory garden. And then I told my brother and he was like, That's so weird because mum said she's been seeing things about about our dad all day. Yep. Um, And so we just kind of took it as a sign that hopefully he's around to help us.
1: Interesting. And if you don't mind touching on your dad for a little bit, how was that growing up for you guys? obviously quite a traumatic experience for a family to grow up without one of their parents passing away. Hmm. Did that kind of bring you guys together or was it kind of you just didn't really speak about it much? It
2: was a bit strange because I think there was such an age difference so Mm -hmm. I was only six so I I went to school the next day I don't think I really understood what was happening um and I definitely really really struggled with it more at that 13 14 year old mark my sister was 13 or 14 so I know she got she was really impacted and couldn't go to school and you know, things like that. My family really stepped up. Like, my uncle was a huge role in our lives. All my uncles and my grandpa, um, things like that. And my mum was awesome. Like, even though we really butted heads in hindsight, she was doing it super tough. I think I just found it hard being like a, you know, particularly a young female. I really found it hard not having a lot of male role models or someone that I felt could, like, step up and back me for a lot of, things
0: mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I found that probably the most challenging.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's a credit to you, you know and your family, your mum, all you know, you and your your two brothers and your sisters have all turned out to be fantastic human beings. So, are oh, we
2: girl right?
1: Yeah, um, and we'll just we'll lighten up things a bit because so we've gone pretty heavy there, and I don't want to pry anymore. Now, you did have a bit of a unique rating system on people's aesthetics looks. <laughs> so, can you please just run us through? So, normally, like, most people have a rating system 0 to 10 rating people on looks. Mm-hmm. And I always think it's a bit of an insult to give anyone less than a 5. So, I think, I think it's really 5 to 10. 5 is your starting point. You've got maybe an increment of 0.5. You have a very different take, take on how to rate someone's looks.
2: Look, it's a bit brutal, but it is what it is. So, my system is a 0 to 4 system.
1: <laughs> Look, I'm laughing already. I <laughs> know what's coming. It's absurd. Yeah, go on. Go on. I
2: actually don't remember... Um, how this started but so it's zero to four so we start at two um two being just your average joe you know not not just not anything it's not offensive it's just you'd walk past them on the street you wouldn't think anything about it mm-hmm. totally Then <laughs> you've got moving up one we've got someone who is pretty attractive so you walk past them and then they get you to do a little look back that's a three. Then we've got a four, someone who is so attractive that you would get you would risk getting caught taking a picture on your phone in order to show someone at this later.
1: I'm yet to meet a four then because I've never had the inclination of taking a part of someone yet. Yeah, go on. And and below two.
2: Look, mind you, I have to do a disclaimer, this was definitely pre social work before I knew about people's privacy. Um, and <laughs> yeah. being a decent being. Then we've got the other way of the system. So starting at two, neutral, a one, same theory, someone who causes you a bit of a look back, but this is because they are so unattractive. <laughs> and a zero, the big fat nutter. Oh, wait, no, sorry, I've, I've screwed it up. It's backwards. Four is the worst. Someone who you would risk taking a picture of to show someone how unattractive they are. <laughs> the reason being that a zero being someone that you would risk taking a picture of because they're so attractive is because they are. And that's where
1: we've got the Matt Maddie's, Maddie, Maddie's doing the okay symbol with her hand. I just find that system, there's not much, um, like it's just too extreme. Someone's slightly attractive going, then the next level is someone you take a photo of because they're so good looking. <laughs> but anyway, it's, I think that yeah, sums up your, your uniqueness in a nutshell. That, um, that raking system, so that's quite good. Now, run us through, you had a done a pry too much, you had a bit of trouble with your jaw, and you had quite a bit of a, a battle with that. Yeah, so take us through, yeah, the issues with your jaw and how you've progressed, progressed through that.
2: Yeah, so I needed um, jaw work since I was about 11. Um, my jaw dislocates and gets locked open and locked shut. Um, so we tried a whole lot of less invasive stuff, but it didn't, um, it didn't work, it didn't help. Then I needed braces um, we couldn't afford it. Um, my mum didn't have private health insurance until later later on. So when I was about, I think, I don't know, 23 or something, I started the process for a double jaw reconstruction. So basically I had all straight teeth um, and what they did was cut the roof of my mouth in half and widen my, uh, put a space in between my two front teeth that was about an inch, creating like a wider top jaw what happened when they cut it was the right side of my face dropped, so I had a like a um, a droopy face. Then they put on braces and pulled for two years and pulled my teeth back together.
0: Mm-hmm. And then
2: this year I've just had a double jaw reconstruction where they broke my top jaw and bottom jaw and put it back together. But I think you know the hardest part about all of that was just realizing you know I never really thought that much about my looks or about you know my experience really as a female and I think in that like I had people I had someone spit at me I had someone gag in my face
1: did anyone ever take a photo of you because you're that unattractive
2: yeah no people (laughs) did you drop
1: to a fall
2: people absolutely did and someone even came up to me and said oh my god you would have been such a pretty girl if it wasn't for your face and I was like
1: (laughs) yeah that's pretty good isn't it (laughs) I got a like when I was a bit I got a bit of a shock because I I think I hadn't seen you for maybe a while um we kind of went our own ways and we we saw it at uni once and um I just think hats off to you you, you're never really a vain person but I think anyone who had their face had what you had done it would have been really it would have been really hard I suppose to go out in public and do your normal things just because people are so in the reactions you got like what but we're such, I suppose, we're such a visual society, and especially, I suppose, being a young female, where, or even just not even a female, just a young person in general, where you know your looks are more important to you probably between sixteen and thirty than there are at other yeah. times of your life to have that. And still, if to front up and go to uni and do your jobs, a credit to you that you didn't just, you know, hibernate in your room might happen. happened. You still, you still got out there.
2: Um, I actually did my my interview for my first job at the refuge. With a, It was the day after my surgery. Yeah. I had a blue face. It was the size of a melon and I had no facial movement. And that's how I did my
1: interview. Just goes to show what a great organisation that they just, yeah, really said the person in me. <laughs> so. I have a
2: maybe, great personality.
1: Maybe they thought it was a great icebreaker for the guys <laughs> in Refuge. But um, no, you're back to looking like what you were before. So that's um, that's great. Yeah, quite an interesting... Oh, that would have been a difficult time for anyone, I'd imagine going through that because how 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 long was it like that your face I suppose you had that gap between twenty um, teeth.
2: I had three months of the fullest gap until I had the braces on, but then yeah. the gap didn't close up for probably 18 months. Um just slowly, slowly. But yeah, it was just weird. Like, you know, i I look kind of the same, but I didn't when I looked in the mirror, my face didn't look how I knew it to look. And that was always really weird. Mm. Um and I kind yeah, of realized be- how different I was getting treated like I never thought I was overly kind of sexualized, but people were like, you know, usually people kind of like occasionally would buy me drinks or just kind of yeah. like let me jump in places and people, I just became invisible or people would like bump into me and it's it was just diff, really different.
1: Kind of saw the worst of humanity in that. Did you lose any friends at all? Were any friends that shallow or did all your friends stick by you? And-
2: um, a lot of friends I cut off. So I had a few people that were just like, yeah, couldn't talk to me because they were like, it's just disgusting. Like, I can't so talk. Right. Would just like, yes, yeah, stare at my face all the time. Like, yep. yeah.
1: And I suppose you don't really want to be friends with that if you've, you know, you've gone through an injury, or a car crash, and you're different. You want your, you know, your friends to be there because of your personality and what you, that combined relationship. And if someone's going to talk to you because you look different, it's pretty, um, it's pretty ordinary behavior. Yeah, um, absolutely. Funny. So you've, you've probably gone through your whole ra- 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 ranking systems there with that surgery.
2: Yeah, um, absolutely. I know what it's like. That's, that's
1: why I can say confidence. <laughs> <with big guys. laughs> oh, dear. Well, thanks, Matt. You've been so generous with, with your time. We'll just finish off with our favourite segment here, funnily enough, called Baker's Dozen. We'll just ask you 13 rapid-fire questions. Um, yes. Feel free, if you want to expand on the topic, feel free. So we'll start off Albion or Sunshine?
2: Oh, uh, Sunshine.
1: St. Pat's or New Year's Eve?
2: Oh, St. Pat's, every
1: time. Sweet or savoury?
2: Oh, salty sweet. <laughs>
1: Netflix or Spotify? Netty. Rebel Mads or Responsible Mads?
2: Ooh, Rebel.
1: Next or Bang?
2: Next,
1: 100%. Chocolate in the fridge or pantry?
2: Chocolate in the freezer, man.
1: In the freezer, I'll have to try that. Half full or half empty?
2: Depends
1: who's holding it. I like that answer. I've never heard, heard that take to it. That's good. Folder or scruncher?
2: Oh, folder, 100%.
1: Proactive or procrastinator? Proactive. Text or talking? Talking. Autumn or spring?
2: Um, Spring.
1: Paper or computer? Paper. Beautiful. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mads.